What is fascism? Could fascism happen here in America? Stand back and stand by. What can we do to stop it? You can't love your country only when you win. You're listening to The Other F Word, a series all about fascism in America on Mornings with Serlina. Welcome to Mornings with Serlina. So we are continuing our special series, The Other F Word. It's a deep dive into fascism, everything fascism. We talked to Professor Jason Stanley, and today we're going to be talking to Professor Ruth Ben-Yat from NYU. She is the author of the book Strong Men. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure, it's a pleasure. So one of the things that we talked uh, to Professor Stanley about um, is, you know, the myths that um, many authoritarians um, and and fascists uh, sort of believe and uh, repeat uh, and sort of condition their followers to believe. Um, But the other piece of um, why they're so dangerous um, is political violence, the normalization of political violent, violent rhetoric, um, inciting rhetoric. And we're seeing that here in this particular country. I mean, obviously, there were plenty of warnings before the insurrection that Donald Trump's rhetoric could lead to violence. And we saw many examples of that even before the insurrection. Um, but in your view, what what is the difference between passionate rhetoric you know, really, um, you know, sharp political rhetoric and the type of um, inciting political rhetoric um, that can become dangerous? Yeah, that's a great question. It's to do with intention. Uh, What is the intention of um, and what are the patterns of the person who is um, engaging in this rhetoric? And One of the things I think we can now look back and see that uh, Donald Trump, for example, from 2015 onwards, he used his rallies as a kind of um, not only propaganda retraining, but emotional retraining. And one of the goals was to change the way Americans viewed violence. And this is something that the fascists did. You have to change the perception of violence, which it can be reprehensible to people to think they have to go after their neighbors, ruin their communities, um, become informers, all of these things that authoritarians do. So this is one of the things I advised the January 6th committee on, that he used his rallies to um, consistently talk about violence in um positive terms. He said, oh, in the old days, we used to be able to beat people up, um, referring to protesters. Um, And now we can't do that anymore. And then he would offer to pay repeatedly, offer to pay the legal fees of people who might beat up a protester or get into trouble, and then, you know, would have legal problems. So he, he did this over and over again, because he knows that propaganda needs repetition. So that's an example of somebody who for years did this with an intention to cultivate what I call his own private army of thugs. And then look what happened on January 6th. And I, I, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that it goes back to the campaign because I have a very vivid memory, and this is a true story, um, when I was working for Hillary Clinton, I'm standing in 
Brooklyn headquarters, and were watching the rally in Chicago. I know exactly which rally it was because it was a <laughs> rally where I was watching it, and I turned to my colleague, and I looked him in the eye, and I said, this feels like a Klan rally. And he was, like, completely, like, flab- you know, like, not flabbergasted, not the right word, but shocked by mm-hmm. just, like, the fact that I said something, you know, so strong. And I was like, no, 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 this, th- I feel it in my body, in my bones. Like, this feels like it could be in black and white from Eyes on the Prize. I, I don't, this is really scary what we're watching right here. Um, help people understand what was unique. Because, you know, Sarah Palin said, you know, President Obama was palling around with, terrorists um so so there's always rhetoric that can get people riled up at these these political rallies um but what what was it particularly about those rallies i remember that chicago one um that sort of escalated things to the point where it it is the logical conclusion of that conditioning as you described it is january 6th because a couple of things and i too there were a couple of rallies. Um, I, that's why I started, I hadn't written on American politics uh, other than gun violence. Mm. And when I saw those rallies being, having, you know, spent many years studying fascism and rallies and leader cults, I, I was very freaked out and I started writing for CNN and I covered the 2016 election for CNN opinion because of that. <laughs> so what was new, there was the conscious cultivation of a leader cult that and and the early rallies where he had loyalty oaths that's what freaked me out uh where people would pledge their loyalty to him and we saw what happened once he became president this became the driving force of of government you you had a place and a career in government if you were loyal to him and that's totally authoritarian and then the other thing uh, and again we will look back um that's totally authoritarian and was new is that Hillary Clinton, his opponent, um, it wasn't just that you had a difference of opinion and you could um, say terrible things about them. Um, You could, in the case of Obama, you could be racist, but she became a political enemy who had to be quote locked up. And that's, Mm -hmm. we're out of democracy when you start talking about your political opponents who need to be locked up. So, so, so that was one thing. And the final thing I'll say is he, he designated uh, new political enemies because plenty of uh, Americans were already racist and he made racism his brand. That was new. Um, they already hated immigrants, perhaps. They had their hates. But uh, he designated the press um, as a political enemy and then Democrats were political enemies and this typical. So the roster of enemies has to expand. And so if you take that with what I said before, and then he keeps talking about violence as positive, that's why after his, every time there was a rally in the 2016 campaign, you might recall uh, there was reporting that there were spikes in hate crimes in the counties where they were held. And that's very important for January 6th because basically he'd jack up these people and get them all riled up with violent, a violent talk, and then they would go do violent things. Mm. <laughs> and that's what happened on January 6th. That's been a focus of the hearings. He summoned all these people, he jacked them up, he sent them off to the Capitol, and look what happened. I mean, it, it, 
now that we've been through eight hearings um, and, and with that explanation, I mean, it should be, um, you guys at home, um, you know, the light bulbs should be going off because all the pieces are sort of coming together and they're painting a picture that's very scary, but one that we can see. We can see it now. One of the questions I've always had from the beginning is, does Donald Trump wake up in the morning? I mean, you can't know what's in his mind, but based on his behavior, is this like his own master plan to be a fascist leader, to be that authoritarian leader? Is it is he just standing, stepping into this role because he's a narcissist and he likes the attention and it's sort of, you know, it's a two-way um, street in terms of what his followers get from him and what he gets from his followers? Like, is he intentionally being fascist or is this like a Steve Bannon? Inf- like, what is happening that somebody mm-hmm. who, you know, for all intents and purposes, like a reality star until they are now, you know, the... Um, authoritarian leader of, you know, a growing portion of the American electorate, third of the American electorate. Yeah, that's that's one of the questions I get the most often. And unfortunately, it's like a meeting of personality and circumstance. And what and many of these successful strongmen uh, I found during writing my book come from uh, the fields of entertainment or communications. Uh, even like Mobutu in the Congo was a journalist. Mussolini was a journalist. Um, and and so they read the marketplace and Trump was a marketer and a superb propagandist. And they will be whatever they the people need them to be so they can get power. So here's Trump who, so they're total opportunists, but they will become very passionate. They're actors about whatever is going to be the thing to be at that time. And so he read the marketplace. He saw there was this big gap where somebody could come in and cultivate all these extremists, give them a big tent, uh, be openly racist, be be hateful and misogynist. And so that's what he became. Also, what happens because of these things, this is like an irony. Um, they partner with religious institutions who will tell tell the world that they're sent by God you know, to rule. And often it's the most uh, profane and impious people. Like Mussolini was an atheist. He was a serial rapist and the Vatican elevated him. Same here with Trump. Uh, it's hard to find somebody who has, is a criminal in more ways than Trump. And yet look, Orthodox Jews, evangelicals say he's there by the will of God. And that's because they are opportunists. Now, the other part though, and this is scary, um, Trump surrounded himself with people who had decades of experience either wrecking democracies or um, being right-wing propagandists like Bannon, who had a plan. And here I'm thinking of Roger Stone and Paul Manafort, Mm -hmm. who had a lobbying firm. (laughs) And I found this is, I didn't know until I wrote my book. And so they started out in, and they worked for all these dictators, And so in the 1980s, they worked for Ferdinand Marcos of the Philippines, the dictator. And what were they doing for him? They were hired to pull off the the PR and lobbying for a fraudulent election. So (laughs) they've been doing this for a very long time. Um, And that's just some of the major players. So then Michael Flynn, there's all these people who have absorbed the lessons of authoritarianism and they brought them to the campaign and onward to January 6th. 
my mind is is exploding. I'm like the the brain <laughs> explosion emoji right now. Um, you guys, I, I don't. That's I, why I'm like in stunned silence. Um, I, I would I would have these together. moments when I was Ooh. writing the book, and I things would come together, and then I would get very scared for our country, mm-hmm. and I would go and do yoga, uh, and yes. then come back and continue writing because it's a Highly lot. Highly recommend. Highly recommend. I mean, in the beginning of uh, Hillary Clinton's book, What Happened, she talks about how she was taught the proper way to, yo- you know, do yoga breathing and how she finds it very helpful. And I, I agree. It's it's a very, very helpful practice. Meditate. Do whatever you need to do. Do a dance party in your kitchen today if you need to after this conversation. I, I'm going to need to. Um, one of the things you tweeted recently is um, authoritarian style discipline in the classic, quote, make an example tactic is a goal and the goal is to keep the party's crimes a secret by dissuading others from telling the truth. I mean, as I have, you know, as, as we've been processing what we were seeing at the January 6th hearings, which you mentioned, um, in a lot of ways, it feels like, um, like at this point, there are so many crimes (laughs) that you could, you could sort of charge Trump with. Um, going back to even his time as a businessman, like it's actually ridiculous at this point that he hasn't been crime charged with like a single felony. Um, but it also reminds me of the fact that, um, you know, he's threatening retaliation for the January 6th investigation. So one of the big fears I have is if they don't charge him and he runs and he wins, you know, like they're going to lock all of us up. I'm definitely going first. Maybe you too. You know what I mean? Like we're all going to be in a lot hot water um, because of some of the things that you've explained this morning. So can you talk a bit about the danger we're in in this moment where we're trying to get accountability um, and the the threat is still out there that he may run again and then now we're really in a pickle? Yeah, it, it, that that's a concern. And when people talk about whether to prosecute him or not, um, I'm writing on this this morning for my um, newsletter uh, about threats to democracy called Lucid. Uh, this is the essay that's coming out tomorrow. There, when we think about danger of prosecuting somebody like that, um, there is the fear that it would fail and there would be retribution. Um, but that's not that can't be a deterrent because it's too important to to have to the state that asserts itself, the democratic institutions that assert themselves against this force of violence. And um, 60% of Americans right now believe that Trump should pay some price. Um, And the other thing is, you know, if he gets back into power, he he will uh, exact retribution and it will be very speedy because that's the authoritarian way. So the stakes are too high um, not to try. And I, I personally believe it would also be a kind of um, abuser abuse dynamic to not mm. um, try and prosecute him because you're too afraid of what he might do. Uh, that mm. it has not worked very well in history because partly the reason that Mussolini and Hitler uh, got in um, was that there was a fr- there was fear that they would um, you know, it was there was an idea that they could be tamed if they were given what they wanted, which was to become the head of state because um, they were appointed these fascists. So that doesn't work very well. So we have to go through this process and it shows the world, too. It's very important from a foreign foreign uh, 
you know, policy point of view to show the world that we're not going to um, do nothing in the face of this criminality. Oh. It's, I, I hope you guys are, are doing okay at home. <laughs> I am processing a lot this morning, and I know this is a deep dive and it's a little bit scary, but um, it's important for us to understand all of this so we know what um, is at stake in this particular moment. In what ways is Trump different? than some of the other authoritarians you mentioned? In what ways is our sort of fascism unique, if it is at all? So what the one of the, it's, it's a great question. Um, well, he doesn't read. Um, so he's, 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 <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's you know, he, he comes from TV as well as business and Berlusconi <laughs> in Italy was the same, um, who did many of the same things. He didn't do a coup attempt, but um the wild card of our country, and this is less about Trump than um, the, the population, is the guns thing. There, there is no other situation. Um, even the fascists, you know, it was right after World War I, so a lot of people had guns. There were a lot of veterans. They were the core of fascism at the beginning. But there isn't any other country in peacetime that has so many um, guns in circulation in private hands. There's also no country that's ever tolerated so many militias and these these uh, fakey sovereign sheriffs, all these people who are really subversives, anti-government subversives, and they somehow are just fine to be tolerated. So, so that's that makes the situation a little bit uncharted territory. Um, the other way Trump is different in in a very 21st century way. Um, is that he, um, his business uh, was in part a cover, you know, reportedly for money laundering. And, and so when he talks about the anti-globalists, you know, he doesn't like the globalists, nobody is more globalist than Trump because his entire business model was uh, allowing, licensing his name abroad and allowing foreign, uh, you know, illicit, players at bad actors to launder money through his real estate. So um, that's, so he's, he's an unusual figure, but that's how these guys are. Mussolini was an unusual figure too. So was Mobutu who could charm anybody was lethally charming Mobutu who, who had a dictatorship in the Congo, um, very charismatic. So unfortunately he's a lot, I didn't expect to find so many similarities with his personality yeah. Um, to these other people. The outcome is different because we don't have as many one-party dictatorships. And that's why also it can be hard for people to recognize like when when's the tipping point because we had January 6th, but before that he was already wrecking democracy little by little. Mm. It's, it's scary when you're saying all this, but it's also really um, validating. Um, because yeah. I think a lot of people listening at home have had this, you know, sort of feeling of visceral anxiety <laughs> from the beginning, and they maybe didn't know exactly why. But now that you're explaining it in, um, in comprehensive detail, it makes so much more sense. So one of the things that I also think a lot about is, you know, in this moment, Republicans have a choice. The committee, you know, is, is doing a, a, an excellent job of laying out the case um, with the voices of Republicans who work for Trump, some of them, um, who supported Trump previously, who are, you know, testifying as to what he did here. But for the most part, the Republican Party, by and large, um, you know, they've just gone along with this. 
um, why? <laughs> and also, what's the solution at this point when you have a, one of the two political parties in the country bought into the authoritarianism? Like they're 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 not practicing democracy. They're not engaged no. in. The no, it's, of and and this too is a little different uh, than other countries because we're there aren't that many bipartisan democracies. We have these two giant parties. That's why, like AOC said, if this were a different country, I might not be in the same party as Biden, because normally yeah. there are these. And and this is this makes it harder for us because when you have a lot of parties, if one of the parties goes rogue and becomes extremist, <clears throat> the other parties that still are anchored in dem- democracy can maneuver and prevent that uh, party from gaining power. And that happened in Italy in 2019, for example, because there's mm. lots of parties. So we don't, we don't have that luxury. So why are they going along with it is, is and the, the meme that was going around of Josh Hawley, you know, inciting the violence with his fist pump and then having to run for his life and then we should have the second part of that meme is that he's then still fine with all this. So the big mm-hmm. tragedy is that even Mike Pence, who could cha- who could actually change the situation for the American public by speaking out, they they're they're not doing that. <clears throat> they're not testifying. They're not doing that. And that's um, that's because Trump really subjected them to this kind of authoritarian discipline. I think they don't want to be threatened, which is crazy because they already had to run for their lives and Mike Pence nearly escaped being killed. <laughs> so it's it's a function of them just being all about power. And it's like a, in the mafia terms, you say it's omerta, which is a word of silence for the good of the collective. Um, also mm. silence so that you're not killed. And, and organized crime is a very good way to understand authoritarian dynamics. There's a lot of overlap, especially in Trump's case. Um, and that's the tragedy. And so that goes to your other question, like, what do we do? Because one party is no longer anchored in democracy. It's, it's remaking itself to be um, a party that's going to rule in some kind of other form, like a not democracy form. That's why they're obsessed with Orban in Hungary. Um, they're looking to him. Or, and also you have these little imitators like the very dangerous uh, Ron DeSantis, who's yeah. making Florida into a little autocracy. I mean, speak to, to that. So even if Donald Trump says, like, for whatever reason, I'm not running in 2024, which I don't, I, I think he's going to announce. I don't know what happens after that, but I think he's going to yeah. announce. I mean, it's interesting. There is a federal grand jury, everybody. Reminder of that breaking news from overnight. But um, how much more, how dangerous is it if say Trump doesn't run? How many little mini Trumps are there ready to go? Like DeSantis? There, there are several. Um, DeSantis has, is, I, I've been writing about him since 2021. I had a similar bad feeling. So that's why mm. I started writing about him. Um, because he's been able to absorb the lessons of Trump um, even his hand gestures, and yet he's goes beyond him, and he's actually the most funded candidate in terms of donors uh, after Trump. Um, so that's working for him. But you have other people who are doing making their states like Abbott in Texas, but he doesn't have the um, 
the, I don't think he has the qualities to prevail as a national candidate. Whereas DeSantis, uh, next time you see him, look at his smile. It's entirely fake. And he's like an actor. And he unfortunately has this opportunism. He'll be whatever you need him to be. Um, so he's the main person I see who has the national appeal and the, the skill set, which is, a, in my mind, a totally negative skill set, <laughs> to be uh, a mini Trump. So I've been calling him mini Trump, Mussolini of Florida. Um, I have all <laughs> kinds of names for him. Um, yeah, he's, he's bad news. I appreciate it. I mean, one of the things that you mentioned, his fake smile, I think is a really apt point because there was that moment where you know, the mask came off where he yelled at the, with the black children um, from wearing mm -hmm. masks in the press conference. And that was the moment where you saw him. That's where you, mm -hmm. you saw him. You saw the real him. He was berating children. And again, I interviewed the, one of the children and his father. The reason why mm. he has a mask on his face is because he has an immune compromised grandparent that lives with them. And he wanted to protect his family. That was the reason why one of the children, the children in that clip where he was like, Take your mask off. Yelling at them. I could feel actually uncomfortable physically yeah. just watching that clip um, because he was so mean and nasty. Well, he's, um, he's a bully. So, yeah, yes, he's a bully. bully. Yeah. And, and he's gotten control in Florida and there are legislators, this is going to sound familiar from Trump, there are legislators who will only speak anonymously. And one of them I, I, I wrote for my newsletter about him. And the quote I started with was, if you cross and you're dead. <laughs> Um, you know, and it's not literal, but you're dead politically. Mm -hmm. So, and, but actually that's a very good example with the mask because that child was behaving in an ethical manner, a very compassionate, ethical manner of thinking of others and people like DeSantis and Trump, they don't want you to think of others. They want you to hate others. And mm -hmm. so that goes back to the first uh, point about the violence and how, Trump was retraining people to to not care about others, but to hate them. And that's that's the that's like big picture. That's one of the most successful slash dangerous things he did. And so you see DeSantis, who um, used to be a Reagan conservative, uh, which carries, you know, he, he was always uh, probably always racist, et cetera. Um, but now it's a different stage. It's really scary, everything you're saying, but I'm glad that we're having this conversation because I need to know the danger. I mean, like, it's like, you know, when you try to walk around the house and, and the lights are out, it's a lot scarier, even though it's your own house, right? You know where everything is. If there's nobody in there, you know, you're assuming there's somebody that's um, broken in, you know, there's, there's nothing to be afraid of. But when the lights are out, it's scarier. But when you turn the lights on, you're like, oh, this is my house, my living room, those are my chairs, my sofa. Um... This is what this conversation is for me. It's scary when you sort of are walking through the dark, but um, we're, we're trying to put some sunlight on what's happening here in this country. Mm -hmm. Where do you That's see it why... going from here? Like, is yeah. 2022 the last election we're going to have if it doesn't turn out? Well? I, I think uh, that that could be, um, but I think that um, I do have uh, a lot of faith in the American people because... Um, and I'm, I don't like the discourse going around right now in some circles, um, elite circles, that protest doesn't work because I want to remind people mm -hmm. that in, you know, the women's march, we never talk about it anymore, yep. but it directly affected the 2018 midterms. It yep. brought record numbers, like thousands of women were inspired 
to run for office and yeah. a, a record number of women of color entered politics. And then look, during a pandemic, Black Lives Matter, 20 million people attended Black Lives Matter, some kind of event, multi-generational, multi-racial, and that directly affected um, Biden's win. It, it, so we've done this before and we can do it again. I think it's such an important point. I mean, I think I think a lot about the parallels throughout American history, even, you know, certainly if because my grandfather marched in Selma and I think about him, I think about my aunt who marched also when she was 17 years old. And I think about like what she was processing as she was waking up every morning trying to make the world a little bit better. Um, And I'm like, listen, we got this. We've been in worse places. (laughs) I mean, Maybe not exactly in the same, you know, the characteristics were different, but certainly America has felt like it was falling apart at the seams, Um, but it didn't because the rest of us came together um, as a collective um, to push things forward in the right direction, not in the authoritarian one. Um, Professor Ruth Bengat, this has been an incredible conversation. This week is blowing my mind. I'm just sending like brain explosion emojis to my producers <laughs> while we have these conversations because I am learning so many things. Um, I didn't know. I'm putting things in new context and I'm so grateful um, for, for you for taking the time. Um, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Book is thank strong men, by the way. Doing. Everybody buy it. Everybody buy her book <laughs> for sure. Um, we're, we're going to make sure that you read that. So, um, you know, the threats that are, um, potentially ahead, but that we're trying to avoid. Um, thank you so much again, and please stay safe. Me too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday. 